Hello everyone, I hope you are well. I'm Carlos Carnicero Uravallen and I want to welcome you all to Future is Blue, a series of podcasts bringing together top experts from academia and think tanks to discuss the most pressing European economic and policy challenges of today. This is a Funkas Europe initiative and we hope we can bring new ideas for a more inspiring debate about Europe. So we're joined today by Ian Beck, Professorial Research Fellow at the London School of Economics. Ian, thank you for joining us. I'm pleased to be with you. So let's get started. Ian, you've recently published an article about stagflation, the return of an unwelcome monster. So the monster that is hunting us comes from the 70s when there was an energy crisis that triggered prices to go remarkably high and, and growth declined substantially. For the record, inflation reached 15% in the US in 1980. So Ian, let me ask you, are we really close to suffering stagflation at the moment? Well, many European countries are now forecast to have much lower growth this year and possibly even tip into recession. And at the same time, we see inflation rising everywhere. That is, by definition, what stagflation means. Stagnation accompanied by high or rising inflation. And it's something that uh, neither policymakers nor citizens have been used to over the last four decades since the 1980s when policymakers found ways of curing inflation and enabling growth to recover from the difficulties of the period from roughly the Yom Kippur War in 1974 until the early 1980s. So why why is, this, is it so rare to have a stagflation? Because I think you mentioned this happened in the 70s. It didn't happen since then. When it happened in the 70s, it was a bit shocking to have both at the same time uh, high inflation and low economic growth because normally I, I guess you would assume that if, if growth is high then then prices go up and and so on but this is not the case so why is this so rare and why is it happening now well let, let's start with what happened in the 1970s which was it was the end of a period of very substantial growth across much of the OECD world it was perhaps supported by Keynesian policies but those Keynesian policies didn't have an effective way of curing inflation when it started to rise in the early 1970s. Then came the big shock, the oil shock of 1974-75, when the OPEC countries were able to ramp up the price of oil. They partly did this in response to the Yom Kippur War, which was opposing Israel and Arab nations. The effect of that ramping up of oil prices was to transfer income from consumers of oil to producers of oil. And this I would characterize as being a terms of trade shock. The, the terms of trade measures the difference between or the ratio of the export prices of one country to another country. The export prices of the advanced Western countries went down relative to the prices of OPEC producers. And the consequence of that was a, a lowering of the standard of living 
of those Western consumer countries. If you then go rapidly forward to today, you see something similar going on, which is that energy prices in general have been rising. This is to the benefit of energy producers, including, as we all know, Russia, and to the cost of those countries which consume energy. It's more gas than oil this time, but the oil price has also gone up. And this same terms of trade effect, effect is having a negative effect on the standard of living of Western countries. Now, the next step in this logic is that when you're faced with a rise in prices, as we are now, and wages are not keeping pace, necessarily that means a fall in the real income of wage earners. And they start to resist this by saying, right, we need a wage rise. And if the wage rise is resisted, you get, as you've had in a number of countries already, strikes taking place to push the case for higher wages. And that tends to be a, a self-reinforcing mechanism. You get a wage price spiral uh, unless the authorities are able to deal with it as rapidly as possible. So I, I, I don't think I'd, li I'd like to be at this, at this stage a policymaker uh, needing to deal with this situation because you explained perfectly well how difficult it is. So you get demands for for higher, I mean, social benefits and, and businesses may get demands for higher salaries. But if you continue rising uh, salaries and social benefits and, and you're not going to tackle uh, inflation uh, and, and this would uh, take us into the question as well of the uh, how central banks should address the, the, the current situation. So the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates three times. The Bank of England has uh, lifted its rates five times. The ECB for now has remained on hold that probably is going to raise interest rates in July. So what is? Uh, how do you get the, a response right? So you, you control inflation, but you don't uh, you don't enter into a recession, which is what what most policymakers are fearing at the moment. But the, the dilemma for the monetary policymakers is that the source of inflation is external. It's a, a supply shock coming from the transformation in the price of energy. Raising interest rates doesn't directly affect that because the, the usual channel for interest rates is to reduce demand, not to adjust supply. And this poses a real dilemma for the, the monetary policy authorities. And then if you stop to think about it, despite the rises in nominal interest rates, real interest rates have been falling because real, real interest rates is the interest rate once you take account of inflation. So even though the, the Bank of England has gone up to 1.25%, against a backdrop of inflation reaching eight or 9 or 10%, that is a negative interest, real interest rate of 8 to 9%. So it's, it's not, in that sense, a very tight monetary policy. The original analysis of the central bankers was this is temporary. It's part of the rebound from the COVID lockdown. It's maybe exacerbated by the supply shock coming from the energy markets, but it should all dampen down very quickly. What the central bankers are now realising is that initial analysis was misplaced. It was not taking sufficient account of the fact that inflation was slowly building up. It's like putting a pot on the on the cooking on the cooker and expecting nothing to happen if you slowly keep heating it. Now, the the problem for policymakers is it's quite hard to explain to citizens, to businesses, and to 
economic interests such as trade unions, that everybody is suffering from this until we see a resolution of a supply shock. That's difficult to explain because one particular group of workers may say, we are losing, say, let's, let's say 5% of our spending power. We want that 5% back. And if they have the monopoly position or the strong position in the labour market, they can push up their demand. But that then creates an even worse position for another group in the labour market or even outside the labour market, such as welfare state beneficiaries, who will say our welfare benefits have only, only gone up by 1%. This, this group of workers has gone up by 6%. So they're, they're all better off, but we're even more worse off because we have to pay higher costs to what uh, the companies using these workers produces. So it's, it's this un, unplanned distributive effects, which is one of the great problems of uh, stagflation. Yeah, I, think, I think the question of, of an equal sharing of this burden is crucial for policymakers. So I think they need to, to send signals to the societies that everyone is contributing in this effort. So I'm, I'm thinking about energy companies and whether they should be taxed accordingly to, to the, the increase in revenues that they may benefit from due to the current situation. Is, is, that, is that something that um, would help actually to, to, to get citizens on board and the fact that they need to tighten their belts? It's certainly the case that energy companies are making additional profits, not because they've made good business decisions, but because the market has worked in a way which has raised their prices for, for reasons that are outside their direct control. So they're, they're th they are therefore making exceptional profits. And there's a logic to saying if they're making profits that they've not really earned, then there is a case for taxing some of that profit to be invested in limiting the damage to other groups to raise welfare benefits, for example. The trouble is that the arithmetic is difficult. The, the number of welfare beneficiaries who are damaged by this is never going to be matched to the amount of money you can take from the energy companies before you start dam damaging their future investment plans. And that matters because one way of solving the, the current energy-related price surge is to diversify into either domestic or alternative sources of energy. That's something that requires investment by the energy company. So you're, you're stuck in a paradox here. You, you want to hit them, but you also don't want to damage them. So the, the two things have to be seen alongside one another. I think the main way in which governments can help to mitigate the damage is what many governments are doing. We've seen this uh, across Western Europe, finding ways to increase welfare benefits, taking on a bit more public debt to enable that to happen and therefore cushioning the impact, particularly on the worst off strata in society, those with the lowest incomes. Ian, uh, you mentioned something, and it's, I think this is a, one of the differences when we look back to the 70s, is the fact that we have some, uh, some solutions in sight. And, and you mentioned before that we need to reduce demand because we have an external shock, so we need to reduce demand. So we need to reduce demand for uh, traditional uh, sources of energy, and of course, in Europe particularly, there is a, a very ambitious green agenda and a transition to, uh, to increase the use of new green energies would actually help a lot. But of course, uh, this is not going to happen overnight. I mean, the winter is around the corner. We all know what can happen with uh, gas uh, scarcities. And uh, we're not going to be ready in a few months to have an alternative 
source of energy but we are we have more uh, so this is you know we have more alternatives than we had in the 70s and i think we are not so dependent on on oil and gas as we were in the 70s but still uh, this is a this is this is a shock so any thoughts on that any thoughts on 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 the transition how can it help that of course this is not going to happen from one day to the other well ye yes the the transition to alternative energy is a medium to longer term solution it's fair to say that it also happened in the, the 1970s because as the oil price rose globally many marginal oil production sites became economically viable you found an increase for example in u.s production of, of oil the, the north sea was exploited an expensive way of, of, of obtaining oil but today it's overlaid by the fact that we don't want to find alternative sources of oil or gas we want to move away from hydrocarbons for climate change reasons to alternative sources so i think we we can expect to see an acceleration of efforts to build up renewable sources but it isn't going to happen as you say overnight and the the likelihood is it's going to take two to three years to to wean western europe off russian gas in particular we may be facing a further crunch in this if the russians for geopolitical reasons decide to cut off oil supply or gas supply to to western europe in a way that's totally unplanned because then europe would have really to find ways of rationing gas in a way that would enable us to survive the winter so there's a potential bigger crunch coming later in this year so some some policy makers in in europe uh, some voices in the european parliament are saying so listen if if russia can cut the gas any moment and and they may they may do so when when the situation is more critical particularly in the winter why don't you take the initiative in this area and are and do some uh, do a do a bold response and you cut you really take the initiative in terms of uh, closing the gas uh, relationship that we have with russia do you think that those arguments make sense or is totally unthinkable that you can take any kind of initiative when it comes to cutting the russian gas dependency that we have in the west well particularly in europe more than in the west well, the trouble is, is it's easy for some countries where the proportion of russian gas in their aggregate supply is relatively low like the uk like finland but for countries like slovakia or hungary and to a considerable extent uh, Germany and Italy, it's far more difficult because the, the Russian component of their gas uh, consumption is close to half. Uh, slowly they can reduce demand, slowly they can find alternatives which can, can be mobilized quickly. In Germany's case, there's already a debate about not cl uh, closing down their nuclear power stations as quickly as they intended. There's even been some discussion about burning coal as a short-term expedient. So yes, there, there are both demand and supply actions that can be taken, but let's not be uh, dishonest about this. These are going to hurt, and they're going to hurt in ways which affect individuals from the point of view of keeping warm and affect uh, other objectives like the green transition by prolonging the, the life of uh, coal. Do you, do you think it's we may see, because th there's been some some uh, uh you know some members of the commission making the point on and some staff uh, high profile functioners saying you know maybe it's time for in the next winter to really reduce thermostats by a couple of degrees and that's going to help do you think we're going to see some kind of campaign uh, looking into the winter 
of, of weather because it, that, that would definitely help to reduce you mentioned you mentioned before the external source to reduce demand that would actually reduce demand of, of course this wouldn't solve the problem but do you think this kind of campaigns would help to to ease the the, the, the spiral we're seeing in, in prices yeah so I think all these all these kinds of things are going to happen and there's there's no doubt a, a reasonable proportion of energy consumption that can be reduced without causing that much difficulty as you say reducing thermostats if you're in an apartment block where the central centralized heating tell people no you can no longer open your windows if it's too hot find other ways of uh, avoiding this such as turning off radiators so that there there are ways in which demand can be reduced but this is where it comes down to the the arithmetic crunch that for some countries all that is perfectly feasible without real difficulty but where your your share of russian and other gas is extremely high again as in say in Italy or Germany among the big countries, then you really cannot solve the problem by these kinds of marginal changes. Instead, you have to think of, can you, can you import gas from another source, be it the US or the Gulf? Can you do it quickly enough to make a difference this winter? Or can there be sharing within European countries in a way which is not really worked up to now because they're very defensive of their own energy security? So all these things will be on the agenda. And I think the way policymakers really ought to look at it is how do we game what would happen if the, if, uh, the Russians turned off the gas tomorrow? Interesting. Interesting. I, w I wanted to ask you one, one last question because in your article you mentioned you know, a few factors that are contributing to, to see the rise in prices. And, and you mentioned uh, energy prices, you mentioned... Uh, labor shortages which in fact we didn't touch touch on so much because they they may contribute to the fact that wages may increase more but you also mentioned mentioned supply chain disruption and and you're of course you're you're talking about china and uh, the the zero covid policy that is still in place and this is causing quite an amount of disruption in supply chains globally uh do you think uh, talking to china at some point is something you know, that can help in this regard? I mean, I'm not sure whether China would be open to the idea of changing their zero COVID policy, but I don't know if other measures can help to alleviate the problems in the supply chains. I think, again, it's a slow process. There's been a lot of talk in, in Brussels and in other European capitals about uh, strategic autonomy. And that means trying to get away from the kinds of bottleneck that, that uh, dependence on Chinese supply chains entail. But like with energy transition, that's not something that can easily happen overnight. If, you, if you're reliant on particular components for a certain piece of manufacturing and China's the only supplier or the majority supplier, you cannot from today to tomorrow go to an alternative supplier and say, can you quadruple your production of this particular component? You're right. I don't think there's any chance of persuading China that zero COVID policy is something that is any, anybody else's business. We can discuss whether it's the right or wrong approach to COVID, but that's probably outside both yours and my expertise. The, the reality, nevertheless, is that supplies coming from China are, slow, are slowed down, and by being slowed down, make it far harder to uh, deal with the, the rising prices in the areas where there is sensitivity because it's certain particular prices which have the most impact on the consumer prices that we all face. 
That's why energy is so central, because it's not just the cost of the direct purchase of the, the gas use, it's also the indirect cost because it feeds into all other production costs. Whereas some other consumer goods, it doesn't really matter if they go up or down in price because they, the consumers can choose not to have them or can, can choose to switch to an alternative form of consumption. Dependence on China, dependence on Russia and for gas and, and others for gas is now leading to a search for domestic sources, which are going to be green sources. So the, the intriguing outcome from all of this is that we will hit two objectives with one set of policies, which is to green our energy production and to reduce external dependence, which leaves us vulnerable. So maybe two, three years from now, we'll think, what a great idea it was to have these gas price increases. But Ian, this is quite a, a shift in terms of, if we look back in the, the last decades, we were about, it was all about globalization. It was all about producing stuff wherever it was cheaper. And it was all about, um, you know, trading and assuming, of course, that th these countries that, that you mentioned, like China and Russia, they would, the more we trade with them, the more they're going to change and the more they're going to look like us. Well, this didn't happen. And now we're, you're suggesting you're gonna, we're going to produce more things domestically. We're going to... So uh, it's quite a shift in terms of uh, how, how, we, how we see the world. And, and any final thoughts on that? Are we revert, is, is deglobalizing the, the world economy or what's, what is all this about? To paraphrase the American author, Mark Twain, who's, who read rumors about his own death, he said, he said, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. And I would now say rumors of the demise of globalization are being greatly exaggerated. Okay, it's a great, great remark to finish the chat. Uh, Ian Beck, it was uh, great having you on board in our podcast. Thank you so much. And, and be sure we'll, we'll invite you in, in a future edition. It was great having you. Thank you, Carlos, for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to contribute to The Future is Blue. Thank you all for joining. This was all for now. We will come back soon with more exciting speakers on Europe's economic and policy-related key debates. Future is Blue is a Funcas Europe initiative. I'm Carlos Carnicero Ravallen, and if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to recommend it to others and share it on social media. Thank you all and stay well.